0: Hello, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello everybody and my name is
1: Ashling. Welcome back to another episode of For the Love of Weather. We've got a really interesting one today. I'm just going to say two words to you, zombie fires, but you're going to have to wait till the end of the podcast <laughs> to hear what we're going to talk about. But tonight we've got Dr. Mark Parrington. He's a senior scientist in the Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service Developmental Section at ECMWF, working on wildfire emissions. And if you don't know what ECMWF is, this is a name that myself and Gemma know very well. They (laughs) produce one of the most used weather models, the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasting, and we're always very grateful for their advancing science. So you're very welcome to the podcast tonight, Mark. Thanks
2: very much, yeah. Very (laughs) pleased to be here.
1: Great. Um, So, Mark, I... Well we always start our podcast because actually this is where this whole podcast came from so where did your first love of the weather or the climate where was that first spark or moment that you knew ah this this is something I'm interesting and I'm going to go and try and learn a bit more about this.
2: Yeah was inter- I mean what I would I would I'd qualify is that I'm not a meteorologist so I, I wouldn't say I'm definitely coming in here from a weather angle but I am an atmospheric scientist so I was an undergraduate in the mid-90s doing physics in the University of Wales in Aberystwyth and had a very strong program in in atmospheric physics, solar terrestrial physics. And I remember I I had lectures on the the stratosphere and going out from that lecture thinking, well, that was really interesting, to seeing a headline in, I think it was The Guardian, talking about the ozone hole that year. And it was just that one of those eureka moments. It was just like clicking, I just learned about this and found it interesting. And here it is in the news. This is a an aspect of physics which affects everybody and that you know has environmental consequences and helps with the environment. And, and so from there, I, I never really looked back. So I was very fortunate then to, to continue in atmospheric physics and atmospheric sciences, going through remote sensing and then getting into modeling data simulation. And now here I am at yeah, one of the, the best institutions for weather in the world and um, doing atmospheric chemistry and atmospheric composition there. So it, it really fits together very well.
1: You can't not say, though, that you're not a meteorologist, because I think it's like being a, like, if you were, if you imagined the law, and somebody who studied, you know, ethics in the law, that kind of fundamental sort of things, atmospheric physics is the fundamentals of, yeah. of everything. So we, you know, I went on to be a meteorologist, somebody goes on to be a climate scientist, but actually atmospheric physics, I mean, that's the basis to everything. So, it's, it's pretty it sounds like it's actually pretty interesting amazing journey you just actually never decided to go into a specific day-to-day weather forecasting and you've gone for probably a more complex, more complex <laughs> set yeah. of things to study with I mean where does where does it start and where does it end the stratosphere into the into the earth you know it's chicken and egg isn't it as to, yeah. as to what actually comes first I mean
2: with, with atmospheric chemistry we're dealing with yeah all the the fluid din- dynamics and the equations that go into the weather, but then all an atmospheric motion atmospheric dynamics, but also the chemical tendencies and the actual chemistry that's occurring in the atmosphere at the same time. The, and for that, you need to know the sources and sinks. Some of those are driven very much by the, the weather conditions as well. So it, it all sort of ties together. And yeah, so there's a very strong weather component and what we're doing what we produce also has a very strong weather component so yeah there's no there's no getting away from it but I would just I don't I never consider myself a meteorologist I would say.
1: We don't we don't really either just professional we're really good at guessing now we have enough information that we (laughs) we try and guess at what we're what we're looking at but I'm going to just jump straight to a question because actually um, at the time that we're recording this podcast we've actually had some Saharan dust around. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because it, it know that it's another thing that gets captured, the imagination in the media. But yeah, would you like to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, of course. So so in the spring, we, we often see a lot of Saharan dust crossing the Mediterranean, reaching into Europe and sometimes quite far north. Um, this year, we, we saw a really exceptional event, particularly more for Spain and the I- Iberian Peninsula. But we saw dust reaching as far as the british isles reaching round into the north sea and then even up to, to scandinavia and i'm sure many people viewing will have experienced either the, the dust in on the ground in their gardens or on the street or on their cars yeah it is it's it's something we've been seeing and monitoring in cams for a couple of years now and it's just yeah it's just something that's very interesting to show you know how something can be transported so many uh, kilometers from the Saharan desert to to cover a lot of um, Europe.
1: Does that impact any of your work?
2: Not so much. I think, I mean, our work in in CAMS is that we're looking at uh, the composition of the atmosphere. uh, Dust is a component of that. Uh, What it means is we have the data to kind of interpret these events and to evaluate how our model sees them and how, how our model performs when it does that. One thing that we're, we're kind of looking into at the moment is also how this uh, the amount of dust can affect the amount of radiation passing through the atmosphere. So it can affect then the weather through two meter temperatures or through the, the shortwave radiation fields in the model. And so there is then a bit of a feedback where it can modify m- modify the weather in the model and perhaps even improve the weather forecasting by having this, um, this modulation of the solar radiation. But it affects, it affects my work directly because I, I'm working in essentially science communication and showing the products that we have and the forecasts that we have in relation to different atmospheric uh, pollution episodes. And so dust is a big part of that. And so it just makes it a, a busier time of the year, you know, explaining to the general public, explaining to the media what, what this data does, what it's showing, what it represents and, and what the possible impacts might be to us.
0: What weather conditions would you be looking out for in terms of sort of over northern parts of Africa for an event for Saharan dust to push up over Europe and towards the UK?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I mean, particularly for it to reach as far as Europe, we're looking for really quite strong southerly wind flow. So we might have the the right high pressure system over the Atlantic and then the right conditions over the, the Mediterranean or Central Europe that then just funnels all this air into this stream that comes directly north very, very rapidly. The, the dust itself is, we call it Aeolian dust because it's wind blown. So the source of the, the dust in the atmosphere itself is, is the winds over, say, uh, the Bodeli Depression, for example, in Saharan Desert. This lifts up the sand into the atmosphere and then it just gets transported by these very strong winds that are, that are blowing in the northward direction.
1: I'm always amazed, actually, to see how quickly... That can actually happen because so I guess we can watch weather well systems on the satellite, you know, move from, let's say, uh, the America over from America to the Atlantic, and in a fairly, you know, strong jet stream, we could see them push over in three or four days, let's say. So it is always fascinating when you have a point of reference of watching how physically the atmosphere works, and it's pretty incredible that that much dust can actually be lifted that high up into the atmosphere and then dropped somewhere completely from its from its home
2: yeah and we're, we're able to, to model those processes so because it's wind blown we have in the weather model we're predicting the winds where we're modeling the winds and so we have we are able to parameterize that emission so that we get the source into the atmosphere and then of course the the, the winds that transport it and blow it um, whichever direction it goes and then in terms of how it is removed from the atmosphere there's this, this these two processes called depositions or wet deposition which is where sand gets mixed up in rain droplets it rains the rain evaporates and then you see this these deposits say on your car or on your windows or dry deposition which is basically just the, the actual particles dropping out of the air and and into the ground and i think in the most recent case back in march of this year particularly across southern spain you really see the, these very um very clear videos of basically sand blowing down the street and piling up in streets and alleyways and so yeah it's really incredible and to think i mean you would expect maybe southern spain and around the mediterranean this is really close to that to those desert regions but then when you see it reaching Ireland and the uk and the netherlands and scandinavia it's really quite um Quite remarkable that, that the atmosphere is so well connected. And you don't always see this just through the winds, but when you have these kind of almost like a tracer, if you like, it's really showing how connected the atmosphere is and how connected different countries and different parts of the, the continent are connected through the weather.
0: I remember seeing pictures of the Alps and they were just so impressive seeing the snow covered in a layer of dust. It just really transformed the landscape to something quite eerie actually there's quite an eerie feel to it when you looked at the photos but it's stunning stunning to see yeah
2: of course yeah and in the Pyrenees as well and but yeah but particularly the Alps and the Swiss Alps is, is somewhere where you'd think would be so far remote from there and one of the interesting things actually about this this uh, case was that the longer range transport dust so shorter range transport would be where we really see then the sort of direct impacts on the surface close to the source region but typically for long range transport you're looking at the pollutant being higher up in the atmosphere Um, and in the case of dust typically this is you know 3,000, 5,000 meters so if in tracking this dust as it crossed Spain you could see the air quality impact at the surface as it reached to, to France and a bit further away then you could see it was a bit higher up in the atmosphere so you don't see the impact on the air quality but as it was reaching Switzerland and the Alps the ground there is at that kind of you know that altitude and so it's really being deposited directly onto the the mountains because it's at that level of the atmosphere so yeah it's really really interesting to see that
1: tell us a little bit about your role in wildfires so we're talking about things moving around the atmosphere but obviously wildfires are a lot more there's a lot more worrying component to them and I know we have social media, and the and you know media in general keeps us all very connected. But they are increasing, and they do a lot more than just change how a landscape looks. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that?
2: It's true. Yeah, I mean, there's some similarities in in the in that they can change. I mean, we talk about how the atmosphere can change, and just that sort of the eerie nature when you've got a lot of particulate matter in the atmosphere that's coming from a, a you know, many thousands of kilometers away. Um, so there are cases where you see this with, with smoke as well. And But one of the issues is that what is contained in that smoke or what that smoke constitutes can be a lot more harmful to, to health. I mean, there's a lot of really toxic things in there in terms of gases as well as particulate matter. And then, of course, there's the greenhouse gases as well. So the direct imp- influence is really on... Like surface air quality so the air that people are breathing and so they, that, that's what makes them really dangerous and particularly in parts of the world where the frequency and the size of the fires is increasing so particularly western usa some parts of siberia some parts of australia and uh, and around the tropics that particularly where that smoke is reaching large populations, then it's having direct impacts on on the air that people are breathing. And so it's very important that we monitor these things. And there's a challenge in doing that because they're very heterogeneous in the the locations or where they occur, the time of year they occur. There are fire seasons in particular parts of the world, but in a lot of those fire seasons are changing in ways that are a little bit unexpected. So particularly California, they often now talk about this increase in the the megafires. So megafires are ones which are, is it more than a a million hectares, I think is the definition. And we're seeing now an increase in the number of these megafires each each fire season. And where in the past you would have said, okay, fire season is um, April through till September. Actually in, in California in particular we're seeing fires in December November in in May and in in, ta- in times of years which, which wasn't really experienced I mean that's a bit of an isolated case and around elsewhere the general trend is that the, the fires are still within a sort of fairly defined fire season but even in other parts of the world that the length of that so-called season is is seems to be increasing
1: Tell us a little bit about um, Siberian fires and why. That is quite worrying, actually.
2: If we think, if we if if we maybe take a step back and think of more at the sort of hemispheric scale, so we have this there's this band of boreal forest that, that crosses North America, so through Canada and some northern parts of the US, and then of through sort of Eurasia and Siberia. So there's a the, there's forests there which in the summer ha- usually experience some level of fire, and this some of this is really a natural process, and some of the the forest requires the fire to continue surviving for, because it fertilizes the soil. It clears out the dead, the dead wood that's there in the forest. Some tree species, their, their seed propagation depends on fire because they're, they're triggered by the heat. And so they, the fire comes along, launches out these seeds, and then they grow somewhere else. So, so it's not a surprise that there are fires in those regions during the summer months. Uh, but what our monitoring has been showing particularly in recent years is certainly the the frequency and the scale and the duration of these fires is appears to be increasing. One of the things we've been looking at when we look at the fire data at the end of the, the summer for example would be we can overlay all the observed fire locations with anomalies so climate anomalies so, At ECMWF, we also run the Copernicus Climate Change Service, and every month they're producing a climate bulletin, which looks at temperature anomalies, but also things to do with hydrology, so precipitation and soil moisture. One of the striking things is when we compare the fires with the soil moisture anomalies, the vast majority of them are occurring in regions where the soil moisture is much drier than the climate average. And that's what we've seen Siberia last year. So last week we released the European State of the Climate Report, but it has a section on on the Arctic. And there is a map that very clearly shows this distribution or this matchup between the fires in Siberia and where where the soil moisture anomalies were dry. We did something very similar the year before and the year before that. and, And my experience is that this is generally the case. And maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that it's hotter and drier. And so there's more fire in those places. But still, when you match up those data streams, it really sort of um, drives the home, the point that um, as the climate's changing and in some of those parts, particularly Siberian, the further north in Siberia, we know the Arctic is warming faster than, than the, the global average. And so that contributes to the, the fire danger or the, the environmental conditions required for fire. So the fire risk is high. And then when there's an ignition, we see these fires burning at really a huge scale. I mean, you're talking. Of, tens of thousands of square kilometers for, for weeks at a time, not just days at a time, but really weeks at a time. And this, is, this seems to have been a trend more so in recent years, particularly with the fires in the Arctic circle. So in the Arctic part of Siberia um, in 2019, 2020, these were really at a scale that uh, we'd never seen in the Arctic before. It had been speculated about in the scientific literature that, you know, under hot to dry conditions, then we'll see more fires in like the tundra and in the potentially in regions of permafrost. But then now we've actually had we actually had two summers where that really happened at scale that was was maybe beyond what was being predicted at that in the literature
1: tell us a little bit more than about how that sort of feeds into so we have these fires and we know that some of them are are needed but can you talk a little bit about how that changes the albedo and the landscape so like why why do we care why should we care
2: yeah i go. yeah it's a great question is these are you know in the middle of nowhere supposedly in in the arctic and and what yeah why why does it affect us but the as you say, there's, there, there are climate impacts of these fires, which are maybe not so direct. But yeah, to the change in the albedo. So the, the change in the albedo, just where the fires have occurred. So you're changing perhaps the vegetation type. Because of these fires are so large and so numerous, they're leaving big burn scars on, on the ground, which would affect the albedo as well. And then also they're producing a lot of smoke, a lot of particulate matter, a lot of black carbon, And depending on how the wind is blowing, that can be transported really thousands of kilometers at the intercontinental scale away from the fires. One thing we've seen in recent years, and particularly as these fires burn closer to the the North Pole or closer to the Arctic Ocean, would be black carbon being transported across the Arctic Ocean and being deposited on the sea ice. And that would then change the albedo, darken the surface and increase the the melting. And so it may lead to a contribution of you know more reduced sea ice uh, through through that soot deposition
1: When yeah. you say black carbon do you mean literally the, just the color black from burning so carbon obviously the carbon gets released from a fire um yeah. so,
2: so black carbon would be soot basically so the, the soot you know the yeah. that black uh, powdery residue you get from when you've hmm. been burning anything that's essentially black carbon it's a little bit more complicated because there are sort of degrees of this black carbon brown carbon but they're all some kind of darker particulate matter which can deposit on surf on white surfaces and change the albedo
1: and so when that when that changes the albedo you change the sun reflecting or absorbing yeah yeah precisely the heat of the the surface well it's um is, is yeah.
0: there another impact then because you also mentioned permafrost so is there another impact then if we're having fires in areas which is then affecting the permafrost
2: potentially yeah I think um, there's been done some work done by Thomas Smith who's a professor at London School of Economics where he's been looking at exactly where the fires are burning particularly when they're burning in, in the Arctic region and the analyses that he's he's done so far has shown that a lot of the fires in, in the summers of 2019 2020 were really burning in areas of where we know the sort of permafrost extent was and one of the concerns there is that it's it, the permafrost has been, is frozen peat essentially in a lot of in a lot of cases, and what peat is 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 very carbon rich fuel, and so the peat burns a little bit differently to trees and vegetation. It burns at a slow at a lower temperature, which means it can burn for a longer period of time as well. So some element of the fires in Siberia and the Arctic in recent years will have been peat burning. They also release different amounts of pollutants. So they might produce some pollutants which are a bit more more dangerous. So we know if we go to the tropics, for example, in Indonesia, there's a lot of peatlands in Indonesia which have been dried out for for various reasons. And when you get El Nino, then you start fires and these fires burn for a long period of time. Those are burning in peat. And we know they produce a lot of very toxic things like hydrogen cyanide, much more so than burning vegetation. So there's really serious you know environmental health and human health um, issues is with peat burning but also it's releasing a lot of carbon that peat is carbon that's been locked in the ground for potentially tens of thousands of years and so then it becomes a bit irreversible that when we're releasing that carbon into the atmosphere through just the thawing permafrost or when when that peat is burning it's really putting a load of carbon into the atmosphere that hasn't been in the atmosphere for a very long period of time so so that that is a A big concern when when it comes to permafrost do
1: you know i think that's something that so it's actually quite simple to understand but it's only in recent times that that's really solidified in my head that Mm. the earth has this really amazing natural way of storing carbon in trees in peat in in the land like this amazing way of naturally storing it and coal things like that things that we like to burn and when we burn those things we were just that's so basic we release the carbon that it took for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to put back into the atmosphere and it's and it's changed so much how i think as well because when i was growing up we'd occasionally have well so we used to burn coal in my house and um we'd sometimes have peat as well and i have very fond memories of the smell of that burning but it's a very different um like that memory is very conflicted now if I do happen to come across somebody that is burning peat, I know we're much better particularly in the last few years at not putting it into compost and all of that sort of stuff but um it's so basic though isn't it the it earth is, yeah, knows I mean, how to store carbon and we are making that carbon release into the atmosphere
2: yeah well I suppose that's why it's been it was such a good fuel as well because it does have that carbon content it burns reasonably well and it's a relatively cheap source of fuel but yeah there is a a larger environmental cost and in terms of not just climate but also in terms of the air quality as well because there's a lot of other things that are released when you burn peat other than just carbon.
0: You mentioned also burn scars. The burn scars then can lead to flooding and that's another thing that people maybe don't think about because if you have an area that's had a fire then they have uh, they have burn scars and then they get a really a period of really heavy rain then they'll get Flooding or landslides or mudslides, and then you've got that impact as well. And then it's a completely different weather impact that's affecting them, but it is linked to the wildfire that maybe people wouldn't have even made that sort of connection.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I don't I'm not the expert here, but yeah, for sure there there's strong correlations in in the US. They they've seen this in a lot of cases. An example I can remember: there was these fires around Los Angeles back in I think it was winter December 2017, something like that. Mm -hmm. A few weeks after that, those fires, which which burnt thousands of square kilometres, there was heavy rainfall and mudslides and uh, real devastation related to that. I think also we don't have to go back even that far, And that's that's not that long ago. But last summer in the Mediterranean, there was very, very big fires in Turkey and Greece. And I think uh, in some of those regions, there were also then heavy rains later on, which... um, which led to landslides and flooding because of the change in the landscape from, from, burning, from burning those forests.
1: So what exactly then is a burn scar?
2: So a burn scar is, uh, is basically just, the you can imagine a, a forest as, well, very simplistically speaking, as being green, <laughs> but basically a fire goes through and then it just leaves, you know, whatever's brown or black behind. So I think if you've ever seen, like uh, moorland fires or gorseland gorse Gaus fires in in the uk then you get a very clear impression of, of what that looks like it's the blackened vegetation that's left after the fire front has passed through
1: so i guess all the root systems and everything are gone so that the the things that drink the water and store the water are gone
2: in the most extreme cases i think i think that's the case yeah mm,
0: gosh. I suppose the next question we well we have to ask you because it's such an important question but it is how does climate change impact wildfires what impact are we seeing
2: okay it's a, it's a complicated question it's and it's um maybe i'll come to a point i should make um later on but um but essentially the the, the driver the the influence of climate change on on fire is that it's increasing the risk so under a hotter and more importantly, drier climate, uh, the vegetation is a state that's more ready to burn when there's ign- an ignition. So we know we, we, we can estimate in the sort of short-term, we can do forecasts of based on sort of hydrological conditions of this um, fire weather, if you like. So it's, there's an index called the fire weather index or a fire danger rating. And this is based on soil moisture, precipitation, wind speed, temperature. And what it gives you is a map of how the risk changes. There's the European Forest Fire Information Service, which focuses on Europe. And actually, these are forecasts that are produced by ECMWF. And it gives a map of Europe and it says this is where that what the fire risk looks like. So it goes from low to very too extreme, essentially. And so in the summer, you expect to see a lot of the very high to extreme fire danger, because it's warmer and and because it's drier. So if you then, there's also a global wildland fire information system, which then scales out globally. So you can think that when it when in the places in the world, when it's hot and dry, then the fire risk is higher, doesn't mean there's a fire, it just means it's more likely. And the thing we don't, we're not able to predict very well right now is the ignition so we don't that's the big unknown in, in wildland fire so yeah so just to then extrapolate that to sort of the the climate scale we know that the world is warming we know that in some cases in some places it's it's getting much drier we know a lot of these sort of big wetlands in in brazil for example are drying out at a, at a rate that's not that maybe wasn't expected and when that's happening, we're seeing a lot more fire in those places because the risk is higher. So when there's an ignition and that ignition is often human caused, but it could also be sort of accidentally arson, like through sparks or leftover glass, um, but also lightning and, um, and some natural sources, then it's just ready to burn. And it just burns in, often in the way that we've seen, particularly those fires in Siberia. They're occurring where, like I said, it's hotter and drier there. And then we're seeing really, you know, large-scale fires burning over a huge area. That was also the case last year, not not in the Arctic, but then also last year in North America, the same. There there was many weeks of quite intense burning in in Canada and and western parts of North America. And again, when we look at the observed fire in relation to the soil moisture anomalies, it's it's where those were the, the strongest, driest anomalies in the soil moisture. So, yeah, so I think that that's really the take on message when you think about climate and forest fires is that the risk is much higher. The caveat to this is that all the data is showing that in California and parts of the world that this is really increasing and getting worse. And it's related to the to the changes in the the hot to dry conditions. However, at the global scale, we we don't see that trend. We see a downward trend because there's change because most of the fire at the global scale is driven by what happens with Savannah tra- fires in the tropical regions. And those fires have been declining over the last 20 years or so. And so the global totals kind of hide the fact that we were seeing these really devastating, dangerous fires in, in some parts of the world and increasing in some parts of the world. But at the global scale, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't give you that picture. So you, so one of the complicated things and one of the most interesting things about this, and one of the interesting things that, that I'm always finding, I'm, and I'm always learning as I go along, is look following different fire seasons around the world and seeing how they're changing because they show really very sort of detailed changes compared to what you might see if you just look at like the global totals and say, oh yeah, well it's 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 doing this. Whereas you really gotta focus regionally and even within a even within individual countries region state by state or province by province you you really see you can really see quite different trends and so trying to disentangle all of that and try and understand it in the context of how land management changes how climate is changing and then what that possibly means for in terms of air quality and air pollution in those regions is, is 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 something that's that's really interesting and you know i feel very privileged that i have all that data at my fingertips when i'm doing my job
1: why is the fire season decreasing in certain places
2: so i think this is related to changes in land land management practices so a lot of the fires in tropical africa are for for agricultural reasons and it's essentially those that 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 practice is changing and so there's less fire in the savannah region. So they would use fire to clear uh, the winter growth, to clear the land, plant the crops. And then at the end of the season, they harvest the crops and then the usual growth comes back in. And then the next season they would start the fires and, and, and repeat that process. My understanding is that is a, a practice that's declining. And so we're seeing, because we're seeing less fires in, in those savannas, then we see a less less global total emissions or global number of fires
1: what do you do with all of that information like how do you help
2: well um i mean what we do in in cams is we we provide all our data as completely open and and free to access data so anybody can take our data and use it Mm. to do their own studies or their own investigation so everything so what we're trying to do is we're trying to enable people i do my job because i'm saying look we've got and it it sounds awful you know this is but here's some more bad news with more fires in in um, South America or, or wherever it happens to be, but we're trying to engage that data with people there to say, look, we have data that shows this information, any information they have that could improve our forecasts and our products is very, is very important to us, but also there's data there for, for them to use to, to be able to understand sort of changes in, in the atmosphere local That's to it. them. And the idea is that you know we're user-driven as well. So user feedback is important for improving those services provide in improving the data that we provide to, to people.
1: Do you have much interest slash willingness internationally for this type of data? And who are the type of people that are looking for it?
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, mostly it's it's a lot that, so a lot of academics use our data. It's we get our so our fire, we have a product which is fire emission estimates. Which are based on satellite observations of active fires. Um, So there are various research groups around the world who use that that information to drive their atmospheric chemistry models, for example. Going back to dust, uh, one of the big uses of our dust forecasts are solar energy production uh, because they want to know sort of the timing of when, you know, dust might be crossing their um, solar farms and how much might be deposited at the surface how much insulation changes to, to that would affect their energy output for, and then general sort of air quality information independent of fires or dust, but it could also be just, you know, just from road traffic and the usual emission sources that goes to the, so there are some weather forecasters that use that air quality information for, for identifying how pollution episodes are changing, um, or how they might affect you know, particular regions. So that, that's often done through say mo- like mobile phone apps. Um, so Euronews and CNN have, have been showing air quality forecasts based on our data for, for a couple of years as well. So the idea is to have this reach to show people there is data out there that mm. is free and it's open and you, know, you can develop your own applications and your own uses for this data to, to, to improve our understanding of, of how it works.
1: I guess just to improve your own knowledge as well, if you are somebody who suffers um, for whatever reason with respiratory yeah. struggles, illness, etc., cetera, um, you'll probably be paying a lot of attention to poor air quality.
2: Yeah, So, and there's there's a number of apps which are sort of fairly regional in focus, which look at, there's there's one for Athens, there's one for um, I think um, Estonia and the, the Baltic countries are some apps which were developed for, for pollen using we have pollen mm-hmm. forecasts which we which we do our best to verify against the the, the pollen networks that, that exist and we have partnerships with the the sort of european wide pollen network so we are trying to provide then more mm-hmm. like specific information about particular well not just pollutants but then also the different types of pollen. Mm-hmm. So we we through the, the different seasons we can provide that information to. and
1: yeah we've started um and us uh, itv we have started doing our quality pollution when when it gets moderate or poor we do try and um promote you know um talk about that quite a bit it's actually quite complex yeah, um, yeah it's very complex various reasons for it. a whole other podcast work speaking of which our podcast time is flying so let us move on to a get to know me
0: round so Mark, Gemma has a couple of doozy questions prepared for you.
2: Okay. I'm ready.
0: They're super random, some of these. So we'll start with a question we always like to ask people, and that's what's your favourite season?
2: Oh, that's a good one. I like, I mean, I'd say, I'd say, so I have to say summer, right? It's, um, I like summer, but I, and then closely followed by winter. I kind of like these, the stable seasons where not a lot is changing. Um, but I think summer in recent years has is been, keeps me very busy with the the summer fire seasons and it's been it's been it's a fascinating time of year to just really follow that and to to be able to understand and communicate about that
1: very few people that have actually said summer most people go yeah. for spring or autumn which is interesting I
2: don't I don't like the changing clocks I don't I don't I kind <laughs> of like it when it's when it's I don't mind it being dark at four o'clock half past four in the afternoon and I don't mind it being light until 11 o'clock at night, but when it's then sort of in that changing time, it's, it's, it, it, for some reason, it's always confusing. And, um, yeah, so.
0: Interestingly, there was a question the other day on a TV show I was watching. This is completely off topic, but it, it um, gave a number of months that had 31 days in them. And then it said, well, which is the longest month? And you're like, well, if... and it was the it was October because the clocks go back and you have an extra hour. Answer yeah. like, oh, is? is answer. There you go. It's my random fact that I can yeah. share with everybody that I learned on TV the other the day. End, <laughs> like, like
1: I was the one that came up with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting. It's it was. Brilliant. It was my. It's I, was, oh, it's, I was like, yes, it totally makes sense. So yeah, brilliant. Snow? Yes or no? No. Oh, any reason in no. particular?
2: I used to like snow. I, I, I used to live in Canada, and I, I, the winter was great when you have got the fresh snow. I'm a runner. I love running on fresh snow. It's it's the great, it's the best running surface to, to run on. But it's but in this country, and since I've been living back in the UK, it's really you know the smallest amount. It turns to white straight away. It's very slippery. After four four winters in Canada, I moved moved back to, to the UK. The first time it snowed, I, I slipped and broke my hand, so oh, I no. no to snow, e- thank e- you. Understandable.
1: <laughs> that is my biggest fear. Slipping and breaking something. That is one of my biggest fears. I'm like, Who, who's got to do everything?
2: If there was enough of it for long enough, then yeah, yeah. I would probably be pro-snow. But but yeah, not not the snow we get in the UK. So, so.
1: no with a caveat. Yes, the wrong kind of snow.
0: <sighs> yeah. Whereabouts in Canada were you based? Just In Toronto. Oh, nice. nice. So not, mm. not the most small, but certainly a lot more than we get
1: cold.
0: Here. Yeah.
2: In the winters, it's cold.
0: Savage yeah.
1: wind tunnels there. Oh, my God. It's freezing. Jammy Dodgers or Jeff for Cakes?
2: Oh, jammy Dodgers.
1: That was very Good definitive. Jam. How do you like to eat them?
2: Well, I just eat them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no technique <laughs> just involved. There,
2: bite them in half and that's it. I don't take them apart. No dismantling or anything like that.
0: Just, <laughs> right. really, just go for it. Yeah. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be?
2: Oh, that's a good one. Um, I really don't know. Yeah, you've got me there. Um, I really, I really like lemons, so I would say why not go for a lemon? I try, to, try to be sharp, but um, yeah,
0: you know. clever. <laughs> no one said lemon either. Yeah.
2: All well, right. I,
1: so I, I we're one. just always amazed that people can identify themselves with any fruit or vegetable. Yeah. It's <laughs> remarkable
0: what people come out with. It's fantastic. <laughs> if you could invite one person to dinner they can be anybody at all from any historical time frame they can even be a fictional character who would you invite
2: Who would i invite I should have this ready shouldn't i really I, re- I really like the books of gabriel garcia marquez and i think he would be a very a very interesting um, person to meet in real life he seems like a, he was like yeah, i don't know i just
1: why don't i don't know i'm my brain is like like pinging off a who is he why do i know his name
2: so he was he was a colombian author he wrote a book called 100 years of solitude and he sort of wrote this kind of magic realism kind of approach um based in based in in sort of fictional places in south america but um But I have my my partner is from Mexico and so we um so I, I'm very interested in
1: yeah
2: just the atmosphere is very different there and I think you know if it really comes through in his writing and I think he was also a journalist and wrote very interesting things. So I I would be very interested to talk to him.
0: That's amazing. Are you team sunset or sunrise?
2: I think sunrise. I'm very I find the I yeah, I just like the mornings. I just very, very pro very active. I get I get a lot more done in the mornings than I do. In the, in the
1: evenings me too I swear my brain literally switches off at 3 p.m so my best work is always by midday I think my brain switches off by 3 p.m and then the rest of my day I'm not sure what
0: happens I've yeah. just always got a jet lab brain because I'm on night shift so mm. if I'm awake I'm just happy to be awake at whatever time it is <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I and and know the day that you're in as well it's yeah yeah. I regularly have to
0: check what day of the week it is on my phone what day is it today oh it's Thursday okay that makes sense <laughs> Our most random of questions for you next. Fingers for toes or toes for fingers?
2: Oh, it would have to be fingers for toes, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah. And then our final question is something that you wish everybody knew about the work that you do, actually. One thing that you wish everybody knew about the work that you're doing.
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's all based on actual observation. So it's really taking measurements from satellites and turning that into information that tells us about Saharan dust or fires or the air that we're breathing.
0: Brilliant. So it's
1: all satellite based.
2: It's all satellite based. Yeah. It's it's models, but all the models are initialized by all the measurements that we can make from satellites.
1: I'm so curious to know what goody satellites you get your hands on.
2: We have, yeah, we, well, we have, I can't remember the numbers, but it's, it's, it's a lot. It's hundreds Lucky. of, it's, it's millions of data points.
1: Yeah.
2: Every analysis cycle, and that's for the weather, but then also for the atmospheric composition of so ozone, carbon monoxide, aerosols, greenhouse gases, and, and it's a growing number as well. We've got really, in Copernicus, there's also a, a satellite component, they're launching satellites. And what's coming up soon is geostationary satellites for atmospheric composition.
1: That's insane. And Are you serious? Be,
2: yeah, and this is gonna be a game changer.
1: That's game. Yes, wow. I was just gonna say that is so like composition, like of I'm guessing a whole bunch of like spec. So basically a real oh, what's the word? X-ray.
2: Yeah. So I mean the species would be very similar to what we already measure, but mm. it will have full measurements through all the
1: time uh, oh yeah for
2: every 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something that's
1: incredibly exciting
2: that would read that and there'll be a european one but the americans are launching one called tempo the south koreans always already have one called gems and combined as this constellation with the low earth orbiting data it's really going to boost the information content of the the data that god
1: it's going to turn into one of those things where you have like loads of ensembles and you're like trying to figure out how to see through all the data
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exciting.
1: so before you go we would like to leave everybody with a weather wisdom so can you tell us what are zombie fires
2: so zombie fire is, is a catchy term for uh, what's more sort of scientifically known as a holdover or an overwintering fire. And essentially what it is, is it's a fire that's sm- an ember or a bit of fire that smoulders underground through the winter under the snowpack. And then in the spring, the snowpack melts, the, the ground warms up and the fire reemerges at the surface um, or reignites um, the vegetation at the surface after it's been smoldering away for several months under the ground. So these were first, these have been measured and confirmed in in Alaska. um, And there's been speculation about whether they would occur in in Siberia. And then when we saw fires in parts of the the high north in Siberia in in 2020, after we'd seen fires in the same sort of area in 2019, we speculated could these be um, so-called zombie fires. And we don't, they're difficult to observe because First of all, they're occurring in a a huge area of land, very remote. Uh, From satellites, it's difficult because they burn at a very low temperature and um, so below the detection limit of the satellite. And so really, we're looking for when the the fires start in the vegetation again. But there is a group in the Fry University of Amsterdam, and they have developed a technique using satellite data to identify where these zombie fires can occur and um, it's, it's work in progress, I think still, but they've been very successful so far in showing that the conditions for zombie fires in in Canada and different parts of the world. And I'm sure in the coming years that they'll refine that and it'll be a very powerful tool.
1: That's amazing. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you to everybody for listening as well. Mark, can you tell us where we can find you on social media?
2: Okay, sure. Yeah. I'm on on Twitter. My handle is at M underscore Parrington. And yeah, I'm, I try to tweet fairly regularly about dust storms, fire emissions, air quality in general, and try and promote science communication and, and people who are coming through to um, to show off all the amazing things that people are doing for, for looking at atmospheric pollution.
0: Amazing. Um, if people want to follow us on Twitter, we are the number four love of weather. On Instagram and TikTok, we are For the Love of Weather. And if we could ask people to please subscribe, rate and review the podcast, we would really appreciate it. And if you've listened today and really enjoyed it and you know someone else that would really enjoy this episode, we would love it if you would share the podcast with them. And as always, me and Ash just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. Thanks for joining, Mark. Bye, everybody. Yeah,
2: thanks, Ashling. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks very much.